Welcome back to Born Curious, which is, like its home, about unbounded curiosity. I'm your co-host, Ivalisa Estrada. And I am your co-host, Heather Min. Coming to you from Harvard Radcliffe Institute, one of the world's leading centers for interdisciplinary exploration, this podcast brings together scholars, students, artists, and doers. Our conversations traverse current affairs, scientific breakthroughs, cutting-edge research, art-making, and storytelling. Heather, what do we have for our listeners today? Well, Ivelisse, folks may remember that last summer, a U.S. Supreme Court ruling on two cases essentially ended affirmative action in higher education. In a 6-3 ruling, the court decided that accounting for race in admissions violates the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. Today, we're sharing a deep dive into the ruling with a conversation between Sherilyn Eiffel, a civil rights lawyer and legal scholar who served as the president counsel of the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund, and our own Dean, Tamiko Brown-Nagan, who is also the Daniel P.S. Paul Professor of Constitutional Law at Harvard Law School, a professor of history in the Harvard Faculty of Arts and Sciences, an award-winning legal historian, and an expert in constitutional law. Well, hello, Radcliffe. I'm delighted to be in conversation with Sherilyn Eiffel, a Radcliffe medalist and just a brilliant, uh, path-breaking lawyer and thinker on equality. We are here to talk about the Supreme Court decision on affirmative action, Students for Fair Admissions versus Harvard and UNC and its aftermath. And I have to say, there's so much that one could talk yes. about. Um, <laughs> a lot of food for th thought and, and fodder. But I want to start us off talking about history. Now, I have to say, I, I spent quite a few years, nearly a decade, as a doctoral student in history. And so I know a bit about how to do history. And I'm just, uh, what do I call it? Um, tickled that there are so many justices uh, who want to play in our lane. <laughs> and in this Supreme Court um, decision, what we found were starkly different understandings of the meaning of history the 14th Amendment in particular, with the majority which struck down uh, the race-conscious policy, arguing that the 14th Amendment demands colorblindness. And dissents arguing that no, the 14th Amendment is a part of the legal architecture of this country that commands the pursuit of equal opportunity. And so, Sherilyn, I would love to know your thoughts about how history mattered in that case, uh, how it should have mattered, and how it should matter as we think about where to go from here in higher education. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm thrilled and delighted to be here. Thank you all for coming on this beautiful day. You could be sitting outside. I think it's a great place to start. Um, and I actually think you're being much too charitable in your description of um, A, being tickled, because I'm really annoyed. Uh, and, and B, um, you know, 
suggesting that it is different approaches to history, you know? I think there, there's an approach to history that has integrity and there's an approach to history that does not. And um, the reason that I think the majority of the justices can get away with what I think is a very warped presentation of the history of the 14th Amendment is because so few people actually understand the 14th Amendment. And you know, I'm teaching a 14th Amendment seminar here at the law school, and we'll be opening a 14th Amendment Center for Law and Democracy at Howard Law School in the spring. And one of the reasons I'm doing it is precisely because this amendment that I consider to be maybe the most important provision of our Constitution, that probably is the provision that governs our sense in contemporary America of how we think about our rights and our guarantees and our protections is so little understood. It's the reason why we're having conversations right now about the litigation that's um, challenging the inclusion of former President Trump on the ballot in a number of states. The reason that we're having this controversy among legal scholars is because so few lawyers ever learned about Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. We all learned about Section 1, which has all the rights and the guarantees. And then we learned about Section 5, which says that Congress has the right to enforce the provisions of the 14th Amendment. But Section 3, which says that no one who has formally taken an oath, but then participates in insurrection and rebellion against the Constitution, can hold federal or state office or serve in the military, period. It doesn't say, if, it, if, it, you know, if that's the leading candidate of one political party, then it doesn't apply. It doesn't say if it would be bad for politics. It doesn't say if we would, you would own the libs. It doesn't say, there's no caveats to it. Mm. Um, and it was a very deliberate choice. Likewise, we hear people say things like, um, in the political space, you know, if we get elected, we're gonna end birthright citizenship. Birthright citizenship is the first sentence of the Constitution. Um, that provides that every person born or naturalized in the United States is a citizen of the United States and of the states. It was created for the purpose of ensuring that black people, both formerly enslaved and free, would be citizens and was meant to overturn the Dred Scott case. It had the collateral effect of creating what most of us know as 20th century America because of course, um, give me your tired, your poor, and people arriving at Ellis Island, maybe some of your grandparents, great-grandparents, or their parents, um, could become naturalized citizens and their children immediately upon birth would become citizens. In other words, you were now breaking the tie between parent and child. Um, and I was talking with the scholar Martha Jones about this earlier this week that, you know, you could disparage the parent, but it would not be inherited by the child. The child would be a citizen. And that was a powerful statement. And, you know, birthright citizenship perhaps could be done away with, but it would take a constitutional amendment or a reinterpretation by the Supreme Court of what they meant. But when people just say it like it's a policy choice, mm. it's part of the kind of undermining of the power of the 14th Amendment that I think is so corrosive and so toxic. So back to the Supreme Court and SSFA and the contention that our co Constitution is colorblind. I want to first acknowledge our own complicity in this, and by our, I mean people who have been litigating in the civil rights space and using the 14th Amendment, certainly 30 years ago, would, would, would have acquiesced to that statement mm -hmm. in litigation that our Constitution is colorblind. Our Constitution is not colorblind. Our Constitution has never been colorblind, um, which is so interesting. As you probably know, that statement comes from 
the dissent um, written by Justice Harlan, first Justice Harlan, in Plessy versus Ferguson, in which the Supreme Court upheld separate but equal, in other words, racialized segregation uh, by law as being constitutional. Uh, and, and Justice Harlan's dissent is largely seen as very prescient and um, you know, something that reminds us that even justices then knew that, um, that legal segregation was wrong and it's often taught in law schools and I think that's wonderful. And he said in that um, dissent, our constitution is colorblind. Now he is wrong. Our constitution was never colorblind. We know our constitution uh, is not colorblind because it created a mathematical formula for counting people for purposes of representation um, in order to address the issue of black people who were enslaved in the South. And that's where we got the three-fifths compromise, that you would count um, white people as a whole person and black people would be counted as three-fifths, all other persons. We know it was not colorblind because it provides for the importation of persons up until 1808. I mean, I don't know what other people were imported into this country, but it was, it's very clear what they were talking about. So we know the original Constitution was not colorblind. We certainly know that the Civil War Amendments, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, suggest to us that the Constitution was not colorblind. The 13th Amendment ending slavery. Why were they ending slavery if it didn't exist? And who were the people who were enslaved? Black people. The 14th Amendment, which I just told you, we needed the first sentence to ensure black people could be citizens. Because in the Dred Scott decision in 1857, Chief Justice Roger Taney and the entire Supreme Court said that black people had no rights that the white man was bound to respect and could not be citizens, whether they were enslaved or free. So that's the first sentence of the 14th Amendment, as well as, of course, the guarantee of equal protection of laws. Um, and so we know that the Constitution was not colorblind, that especially the Civil War Amendments, the 15th Amendment, of course, um, outlaws uh, any abridgment of the right to vote based on, on race or color. So the Constitution is not colorblind. The Civil War Amendments were deeply concerned with and engaged with the question of racism and, more importantly, white supremacist ideology. And if you read the reports that were relied on by Congress in creating those amendments, if you read the report of Carl Schurz, who was sent by then-President Andrew Johnson after the assassination of President Lincoln, to report back on the conditions of the South. And if you read the joint report of the committee in Congress uh, that um, also reviewed conditions in the South, they were deeply concerned with two things, with what they saw as the stubbornness of insurrectionist ideology in our country and the stubbornness of white supremacist ideology. That's what they were motivated by. So our Constitution is not colorblind. One last thing. It's ironic that in a case that was brought suggesting that Asian Americans were harmed by uh, Harvard's race conscious admissions program that um, Justice Thomas would hang his hat on our Constitution as colorblind and say it with this incredible, you know, with this full chest as though he was saying something so wonderful. Uh, but if you're reading Justice Harlan's dissent and you read the part where he says our Constitution is colorblind, we have no caste in this country, we recognize no caste, that sounds lovely, it all sounds lovely. In the next paragraph he says, but there are people in our country mm -hmm. who are so different from us that we would not hesitate to discriminate against them. And yet these people would be allowed to sit on the train car with uh, white people. And there he then goes on to speak about the Chinese. 
So I'm not sure why we would be elevating this dissent as though it is so wonderful, pulling out this sentence that is followed by, it's, it's lovely that he was not um, prejudiced against black people in the way of the majority, but he certainly was against Chinese people. And so in a case in which the, the very claim was that Asian Americans are discriminated against, to lift up Justice Harlan's dissent as though it is now the law of the land mm -hmm. um, struck me as not just um, a, an alternative interpretation, but a very cynical one. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that's the point of history, is that you can't just make it up. Um, but you can make it up when there are not enough people who are versed in that area to appropriately challenge you. Um, of course, there are many historians and there are many law professors who've studied this, but in the, in the body public, right, it's, it's not well known. And, um, and so they feel they can take liberties with it. Mm -hmm. So let me ask you a follow-up question, Sherilyn. You said that for 30 years, civil rights litigators would have acquiesced mm -hmm. in the notion mm -hmm. that the Constitution is colorblind. Can you just um, clarify what you mean by that? Well, I think that there were legal scholars like Neil Gatanda writing about this, you know, in the 80s, that it was a fallacy that our Constitution mm -hmm. is colorblind and actually doing a really deep dive about Justice Harlan. And, um, but I also think that there was um, the embrace of colorblindness um, is, a, is a compromised position, mm -hmm. you know, I think around a lot of our conversations about race. Uh, in fact, it has been presented as an ideal you know, people say all the time, I don't see race, which I think is lunacy. I mean, I'm, I'm looking out right now, I see it. Um, <laughs> I, can't, I can't pretend I don't see it. Now you can say, I see it, but I don't judge people on that. You could, you could say a whole lot of things after that, but saying you don't see it is such a, a hysterical approach to um, something that is so plain to see uh, that it's become a kind of ideal. And I think that, um, in trying to find a dialogue about, about uh, being anti-racist, mm -hmm. there has been acquiescence to this idea that we shouldn't see race, we should, you know, we should, dare I say, judge people by the content of their character. But I, th I, think, I do think that there is a way in which uh, we did not vigorously challenge that conception in litigation mm -hmm. um, in a way that I think the current, um, moment compels us to do. And I do think that, you know, my own belief is that if you leave things available to be interpreted or misinterpreted or used by others, they will be. Mm -hmm. And um, I think we're being called now to more vigorously engage the 14th Amendment, which after all was cre created for the purpose of resetting American democracy to potentially be, for the first time, a true multiracial democracy, which is a very ambitious thing and a very difficult thing. But that was the attempt of the Civil War amendments. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, we're here now grappling with the consequences of, of that promise having been hijacked. Mm -hmm. And so I think we have to return to it. I think we now have to say the truth. We cannot accept the compromise. Um, we should not consider it a compliment if people say, I don't see race, because it's not. Mm -hmm. um, so. Right, and I will mention that in some of the prior cases by conservative majorities, they've actually cited to the Supreme Court arguments in Brown, and I want to get around uh, to Brown, mm -hmm. uh, where the lawyers were using what they had to use mm -hmm. 
right? They, they were using the tactics available to them. And what Sherilyn, I take you to be saying is that it's time that that's, that utility is no longer with us. And yeah. so it's time to have a deeper uh, conversation about the real true meaning of a constitution and that project during reconstruction. So let's get around to Brown because it's another place in um, this opinion and in prior opinions where there is a divergence of understanding about what Brown really means, um, even about the precedents uh, after Brown. Um, with the majority again holding up Brown as a totem to colorblindness and dissents articulating the view that no, Brown is the way um, that through race consciousness, we can get to equal opportunity. Um, I suppose the question that I have, Sherilyn, is how have we arrived <laughs> at this point where there are such different understandings of what Brown means and where the majority, again, um, makes these claims that make sense to a lot of people, even if they're yeah. not true yeah. to history. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a bad faith take on Brown, so I'll just be you know, mm -hmm. honest about that. I don't think it's like mistaken uh, in any way. And um, I mean, I think something has gone on that's um, quite interesting. You know, there was a period in 2021 when um, you may recall this, a number of judicial nominees for the federal bench at their confirmation hearings were asked whether uh, Brown versus Board of Education was correctly decided. And for the first time, a number of them, 29 in all, said, uh, you know, I can't answer that question. Mm. Um, Brown is, has become what we call canon, right? Canon means these are decisions that are unassailable. These are decisions that within uh, the profession we recognize as, as being untouchable, as being unassailable, as having been correctly decided, as setting out a powerful principle around which many other legal principles are developed. Um, and so we might think of uh, McCullough versus Maryland. We might we, there's a number of decisions that we think of as being canon, and Brown is one of them. So it was a fairly non-controversial question that suddenly became controversial. And a number of us began to point it out, and then we began to see a pivot in 2022 where nominees started to back off of the I can't answer and say, yes, Brown is you know, canon. Um, I think what happened is that Brown became very useful to people. Uh, to the extent, again, this goes back to your first question about history. For people who only know that Brown stood for the proposition that um, legally enforced segregation, that separate but equal is unconstitutional, and that segregation, racial segregation, is unconstitutional, it is a powerful moment uh, in, our, in our collective history, in our legal history, but in our, in our nation's history. And um, almost like people who have decided that they all loved Martin Luther King and, you know, listened to the speech at the March on Washington, but only know one line of it, Brown has conveniently become th that kind of symbol that allows people to say, yes, there was a time when it was bad, but then 
this wonderful thing happened and it all got better. So there's a part of it that's that, that Brown stands for that principle for some people. Um, but I also think Brown became useful to a court that very much um, appears to be focused on overturning a number of deeply embedded precedents. We saw this with Dobbs, um, the abortion case. Um, and obviously, stare decisis and precedent is vitally important to our legal system. And I will speak now as a litigator. It's impossible to litigate if you don't know like what is law. If every time you litigate a case, you know that if it gets to the Supreme Court, it's likely to be changed, you, you actually don't know what theories to operate on. You, you don't know what kind of plaintiffs. You don't know what kind of claims. You don't know where to file it. Um, you do all of that because you know that there's a stability to the law. And you know, even when you don't like the decision that the Supreme Court made, that you're stuck with it for a minute. Um, of course, Brown overturned a powerful precedent. It overturned Plessy versus Ferguson, which was decided in 1896. Brown was decided in 1954. And so uh, what had become this kind of colloquy that we would regularly engage with um, members of the court and more conservative um, legal practitioners and scholars, uh, when you would talk about stare decisis and you would talk about the importance of um, precedent and, and adhering to precedent, at least in some organized fashion. And the court itself had laid out a series of conditions that should be in place before precedent is overturned. And we as litigators operated within the principles that the court gave us for when it might be likely that a long, long held precedent would be overturned. But the court started to lay the groundwork for that no longer being the way precedent would be overturned. And we began to hear it at confirmation hearings. We began to hear justices say, well, stare decisis is not sacrosanct. What about Brown? Mm -hmm. um, and lots of people started to say that. And you saw it in uh, the Dobbs opinion and other opinions from the court recently in which Brown becomes the case that they cite for the principle that stare decisis is not sacrosanct. Mm -hmm. So Brown is too useful to jettison because it provides an unassailable example of when we would all agree that um, precedent needed to be overturned. So that was really important. Then, and I think this is where SSFA becomes important, the court has taken the next step of reinterpreting Brown in this colorblindness mode, which is not the direct way the court has talked about it in the past. They came close with parents involved. Mm -hmm. The idea that merely noticing race uh, in an educational context uh, violates Brown, which is insanity, of course, and you couldn't po that couldn't possibly be true, or you couldn't have had a remedy in Brown. You couldn't have had busing. You couldn't have had um, students, you know, you couldn't have had the Little Rock Nine case, Cooper versus Aaron. You couldn't have had any of these, these things happen if, in fact, Brown was about colorblindness. It was not about colorblindness. It was about access and opportunity. Uh, it was about democracy. It was about citizenship. It was the court saying in Brown that education is the most important function of state and local government, which is the part I think most people don't remember about Brown. Education is the most important function of state and local government, said the Supreme Court in Brown. It is, said the court, the very foundation of citizenship. And that is why segregated schools could not be maintained. Um, 
It is doubtful that any child without education can become successful in our country in contemporary times, the court said. That is why segregated schools were unconstitutional, because segregation was meant to be unequal, because segregation was meant to carry a message of white supremacy and racial subordination. That's what Brown stood for. Um, but in SSFA, now the court has decided that Brown stood for the principle of colorblindness and that therefore merely to notice the race of a student in an admissions process does violence to Brown. Mm -hmm. and, and we should note that one of the ways that the majority opinion is able to sustain this argument about Brown is that it doesn't talk about any of the remedial uh, decisions. It just goes right from Brown to Bucky. Right, and those remedial decisions are the ones where district courts are taking note of the races of kids and moving them from school to school based on race in order to comply with equal opportunity. That is what those cases do. And the Chief Justice just didn't talk about them. Which is ironic because many of those cases still exist at, yes. at LDF, the organization yes. I led until two years ago we have maybe 50 desegregation cases still on our docket. We won a case in the 11th Circuit out of Alabama, Jefferson County, Alabama, the Gardendale School case, um, in which white parents sought as the district became more integrated and actually had a state-of-the-art high school and um, was actually lauded as a really good school system, decided that they wanted to secede from the Gardendale school system and create their own school system and take the award-winning high school with them into this new school district. Uh, and they lost a trial and they lost it at the 11th Circuit with a conservative panel saying this was clearly an effort to, to violate Brown, to segregate and to remove white students. So the conversation about race is happening in these cases, even as we speak. It's not even just about the Green case. It's not even just about you know, the cases right. that were the right. progeny of Brown. This is actually what happens right now. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it's just absolutely false. And I think um, you know, this is the part that I think is most troubling. They're not, they're not uh, uh, mistaken. You know? right. They're just wrong. <laughs> and, and, and I don't know that it can be by chance, given the wealth of information that's out there. They have law clerks you know, who work for them. And so it can't be that it's not possible for them to know this. It is that they are recreating a story. They are creating a narrative that they believe will shape how we approach this and how we think about these issues. And it happens to be not one based on the truth. Mm -hmm. um, briefly on Baki the case where the court originally, Justice Powell, um, endorsed the idea of race as one factor in holistic admissions. You have said that that case was a compromise. Can you explain what you mean by that? Well, affirmative action in its earliest form, um, you know, which began in the 1960s, um, was designed to be a remedial program. It was designed to confront and address um, you know, 150, 200 years of racial exclusion. It was designed to provide an opportunity to accelerate the integration of black people um, into places of, um, of, of opportunity, which are our universities and colleges. That was the purpose of it. 
Um, in the Bakke case, the Supreme Court said, well, you can't do that. You can't just um, uh, you know, create a program that is trying to remediate societal discrimination. Now, if you want to prove that this particular university engaged in a particular kind of discrimination, and that's the remedy, you can do that. But you can't just do it in general. What, the, what Justice Powell said in his dissent that became kind of the law of the land uh, was that, that uh, aff affirmative action was a right held by universities. Their First Amendment right to create the kind of universities they want, to create the educational program they want, to decide what they need in the environment, in the classroom, um, to be able to create the learning environment um, and to fulfill their mission. And um, I can remember, I was a senior in high school, we thought Brown was a terrible loss. Mm -hmm. I mean, Bakke was a terrible loss. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Newsweek, Time Magazine covers, it was not seen as a win. But then we do what we do, which is we adjust. Um, affirmative action wasn't struck down. It simply was um, maintained, but for a different reason. Right. Uh, with, the, with the right held by universities. Um, and so that's how the diversity rationale was born. Um, and we all said, well, you know, that's something at least, and we do think that's important. And universities began um, engaging their, their program. And of course, in the Bakke case, what, the, what Justice Powell upheld was the Harvard plan, uh, was the way in which Harvard engaged in a holistic review and so forth. So it's important to just remember that at the time, Bakke was not considered a win. The other thing it's important to remember is that um, most of the early affirmative action cases um, were cases decided between a white plaintiff and a predominantly white university. So the people who were likely to be affected, um, particularly black students, um, were not in the cases and had no voice in the cases. And in fact, a black student organization tried to intervene in the Bakke case and was um, denied. It's actually really interesting meditation on Rule 24 intervention. But they were denied the right to intervene. Uh, and it really was not until Grutter that we started to get um, student voices and we started to get um, organizations like LDF having the ability to intervene in these cases and make a different kind of presentation. Um, you know, it's important to remember also that the universities that have fought to maintain affirmative action and for which I am grateful and appreciate it, um, are, were embracing diversity, it remains to be seen whether they would embrace an affirmative action challenge premised on the historical and longstanding discrimination of that university itself and seeking affirmative action as a remedy for demonstrated discrimination. Right, well, I will say we certainly have a lot more evidence now. Yeah. Um, these reports documenting um, legacies of slavery at these universities, and there are many of them. Um, Harvard's report just came out, but this, these investigations started back in 2006. Um, there's actually a consortium of universities who, that have issued reports documenting the university's own discrimination, not just slavery, but exclusion um, through the 1960s, really. And so um, 
Justice Sotomayor and Justice Jackson um, cited these reports, trying to make the argument that this history matters, it matters. And yet, actually, as a technical legal matter, under the diversity rationale, it's not um, the case that the history is highly relevant. Um, let's see, I have so many more questions. Let me ask you this one. So going forward, now that we have this decision, the question is, what kinds of policies can universities use um, that could survive scrutiny? What kinds of policies would be considered, uh, in the language of law, race neutral, or at least not uh, race conscious within the meaning of the court. So there are many options, top 10% plans, um, adversity scores, class-based uh, affirmative action. Uh, there are many options. What do you think? Well, I feel like if I had the answer to that, I would be a very highly paid <laughs> consultant um, because I don't think we know with this court, yeah. right, what will pass muster with them. Um, I think we will learn more in time. Um, we have a case percolating up that um, the Supreme Court is likely to take up, or have they already decided on the Thomas Jefferson High School case out of Virginia? Yes. Uh, this is a case that involves a magnet school, magnet high school in Virginia, largely considered the best public school in the country. Uh, they um, changed their admissions policies uh, in some measure to achieve greater racial diversity, but also geographic diversity. You can imagine that people from all over the state want to go to that school, socioeconomic diversity, uh, they created a kind of four-factor score. They removed the test. You do have to have a minimum GPA. Uh, and uh, the Asian American population reportedly is reduced, was reduced from 70% to 50%. Um, and so that case is, is uh, likely to be decided by the Supreme Court. And, th and that will, I think, bring us to the you know, top 10% kind of program, right? When you create a program that doesn't look uh, individually at race, but does try to create um, a set of factors that will um, meet many kinds of diversity um, as the Thomas Jefferson program does. How will the court react to it? We don't know. Um, you know, there's some, some weird language uh, from Chief Justice Roberts that I don't think is necessarily uh, particularly helpful in guiding us. Um, but unless the Supreme Court is prepared to monitor the admissions process of every institution of higher learning in this country, um, institutions of higher learning have to do what they have to do, which is they have to create an institution that is true to their mission and to their vision. Um, and so I think, I, I don't believe in overcorrecting for Supreme Court decisions. Right. I think you have to comply with Supreme Court decisions, but I don't think you have to overcorrect. And so I think all the things that you mentioned are on the table. Mm -hmm. um, you know, top 10% plans have not been struck down. The idea of, um, you know, looking at the most disadvantaged zip codes in the country and uh, socioeconomically disadvantaged zip codes and deciding that you want to do special recruitment in those zip codes. I mean, I think there are all kinds of ways. Um, and of course, we see some uh, institutions deciding to make wholesale changes, um, ending legacy admissions, for example. Um, and so there are lots of, you know, I mean, we know the evidence in the Harvard case that um, legacy admissions, um, children of alumni, you know, deans, special folks, and, and, and uh, other special <laughs> faculty call-ins. You know, that's 41% of the class. That's, that's, that's 41% you know, off the top. 
and the rest of us are just scrabbling for the other stuff. So um, there are lots of changes that, that can be made. Mm -hmm. Well, let me follow up on your reference to legacies. Yeah. Um, what do you think about the argument that some people make mm -hmm. that, no, mm -hmm. it's not a good idea mm -hmm. to end legacy now that the alumni bases of these highly selective mm -hmm. Uh, colleges and universities are more diverse, racially diverse, mm -hmm. than they've ever been. Mm -hmm. So the argument is that it is a way to preserve at least some level of racial diversity. What do you think about that? I mean, I don't know. Of course, you know, it, 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 it strikes me, you know, uh, for, for sure. Um, but I, I, I'm okay with it. I, I'm okay with it. I mean, I, I actually think there's a set of questions to be answered. I'm, I'm not even per se against legacy admissions. Mm. I'm per se against not having a rationale for legacy admissions that are about the enrichment of the environment at the school. Mm. Um, I'm not an admissions officer, I'm not a dean, but I do think that you know you have to make your case with, with any criteria that you use for admission. Uh, and so what's the criteria? What is it that legacies enrich the environment in what kinds of ways that inure to the benefit of all students? I mean, I just think transparently articulating that. You know, the same thing with athletes. You know, you don't have to have an athletic program, but I think we would agree that athletic programs enrich the environment of schools, right? So I think you have to make the case mm -hmm. for why it's important, and then you have to make the case for why you weigh it in the way that you weigh it, however you weigh it. Um, so I think it's, it's, uh, it's a little bit more complicated than saying, you know, legacy admissions, yes, legacy admissions, yeah. no. Very good. Um, I, I could go on and on. Oh, Asking okay. you questions, I think we need to bring the audience into the conversation and invite uh, Professor Charles to the stage to moderate um, the audience questions. Uh, so just to get us going, um, what, uh, what happened? So you talked about uh, Brown, you've talked about the colorblindness rationale. Um, what happened to this idea? Where did the court get this idea that there is a constitutional limit on race consciousness, that something can be constitutional and where we have a number of Supreme Court decisions that say Grutter versus Bollinger as an example that it is okay, but that somehow the Constitution has a sunset provision on a particular conception of equality. Like, how, do, how did you react to that? Yeah. Um, and, and where do you think that came from? Well, um, you know, so we know that in Grutter, uh, Justice O'Connor said that, right. you know, we expect, years. we expect, she didn't say in 25 years, yeah. she said we expect that in 25 years, and I took her to be saying, you know, this is, you know, we, we, we hope, we aspire, right, that in 25 years we won't need this, but I didn't see it as a hard cutoff as the court purported to do, even though we're still at 23 years. Um, but actually, you know, this is a very long-standing uh, Supreme Court um, theory, which is that there has to be a cutoff point, mm -hmm. you know? Um, in 1883, when the Supreme, am I right about that date? When the Supreme Court decided the civil rights cases, 1883 or 1885? Yes. 80, yeah. uh, you know, in 1883, when the Supreme Court decided a, a set of cases that became known as the civil rights cases, which basically challenged racial discrimination in uh, public accommodations in hotels and theaters and so forth. Um, Justice Bradley writing for the court, you know, says that the 14th Amendment is not meant to deal with discrimination by private parties or by corporations. They get to do whatever they want. Also not, in my view, in the spirit of the 14th Amendment, but nevertheless, that was the decision. And, and Justice Bradley also expresses this view that 
you know, the scholar, our colleague Darren Hutchinson describes as racial exhaustion. You know, we're also tired of doing this thing we've never done. Uh, and so in 1883, the court says, um, when a man has shaken off the shackles of servitude, there comes a point when he must stand on his own two feet. How long must the black man be the special favorite of the laws? This is 20 years after slavery ended, right? So they were exhausted when they began, you know? <laughs> From the very beginning, it's been like, but tell me when this is gonna end. You know, there's always like been this cutoff thing. So I think that Sandra Day O'Connor meaning to say something to calm down the anxiety of her colleagues to say, I see an end to this, now became their thing. It's 25 and by God, by 23, we better get it done so that we can come in ahead of time. I mean, there is this thing. Um, and the idea is that, and I think what is so dangerous about the SSFA opinion, is that they have now decided that to recognize race itself is somehow unseemly and an evil. That, that the high ground um, is not seeking to ameliorate the ongoing effects of racial discrimination. The, the high ground can only be not seeing race and to see race in any way. And this is why, and I, I feel this is ominous for the other cases, yeah. not necessarily even in the education space that are likely to come before the court. To see race is itself something that pollutes our constitution. Uh, and it's deeply, deeply uh, disturbing and also, I think, quite ominous. So a number of great questions. The, the start one with originalism, which picks up, I think, on one of the first questions that Tamiko asked you. Yeah. Um, the court in SFFA, the majority, as well as Thomas's opinion, they, they talk about the intent of the framers of the 14th Amendment. Mm -hmm. Now, interestingly, they don't point to any evidence. No to support no. the intent of the framers. And, and as you mentioned, ironically, Thomas points to um, the Justice Harlan's dissent and Plessy as evidence of the, right, which is very odd. 1896. But the, but the question is about originalism yeah. and its application in these types of cases. If yeah. you wouldn't mind offering your thoughts on its selective application, or at least the way that it is applied. Uh, in these particular contexts? Well, I think originalism is an ingredient, is certainly part of an, an analysis. I mean, I use it, you know, all the time. I don't think it's the end of the analysis. It is, it is certainly something that should be considered. What were the people who were creating this provision thinking? What were they trying to accomplish? Um, which is different than saying, what would uh, James Madison have thought about marriage equality? Yeah. Uh, that's not originalism to me, mm -hmm. right? I don't think originalism is, you know, uh, did Charles Sumner think about, you know, race conscious admissions at Harvard? Like, I don't think that's originalism, right? <laughs> originalism is looking at the provision and trying to understand what is the problem they were trying to solve or the problem they were trying to protect against or the guarantee they were trying to, what, what is it and what are the irreducible principles that are part of that? And that's why I, I say I'm, I'm certain and, and one of the reasons I love the addition of Justice Jackson is because she has the receipt. She is there. She is right she is there. there. I love it. It's, listen, listen. <laughs> we have not in our you know, adult litigating lifetimes heard a Supreme Court justice say, I happen to have the report on the creation of the Freedmen's Bureau right here. Like that's just not something that happens from the bench. 
I mean, literally an oral argument. I have it right here and it says, you know, like that moment for me was like kismet. You know, it's just, oh my God, it's fantastic. Because she actually is doing the originalist work that they will not do. Uh, because, and this is what I talk about in my, in my class, in the class I'm teaching here, you know, when we talk about the framers, I'm sure most of you are thinking about Hamilton and Madison and, um, and, and Jefferson, and we're thinking about the folks in the tricorn hats and so forth. But for our lives, the framers that are most relevant to our lives are Sumner and Bingham and the people who are not just the people who sat in the room because framers are, are also the people who are doing the work of creating the principles that end up in the text. It's not just the people who are writing in the room, right? Um, Kate Massour has a wonderful book, Until Justice is Done, that really is about all of the challenges that were happening among free black people in the North that were giving uh, content to the understanding of citizenship and giving content to the understanding of what equality means. So, you know, the, 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 the guys who are in the legislature in those days, all guys, don't just sit in a room and then they start writing and they're like, you know what I'm gonna say? Privileges and immunities. They're, they're not that, you know, they're not bril that brilliant that they just come up with these things, equal protection of laws, I know what I'll say, right? There are things, there are, just, there are concepts being worked on and those people are also founders who are part of the struggle over what these things mean. So if we want to talk about the framers and the founders of our America, of the second America, the post-Civil War America, then we would be looking at that history. And that history makes very clear what was on their minds. And I talked about it earlier, about the spirit of insurrection, about uh, this, the spirit of white supremacist ideology and the stubbornness of it. And the stubbornness. Frederick Douglass, who is a founder, whose voice was very important during this period, says in a speech in 1865, you know, Frederick Douglass was uh, very adamant that the 14th Amendment needed to include the right to vote. In fact, he, he thought the 13th Amendment should include the right to vote. He didn't see any point in ending slavery without politically empowering black people because he believed that to not uh, ensure that black people could vote and control their political destiny would mean that black people would be at the mercy of their former tormentors. And that's how he described it. He gave a speech in 1865 uh, in this very state and city, I believe, to the um, Massachusetts Anti-Slavery Society um, called What the Black Man Wants. So this is 1865, before ratification of the 13th Amendment, certainly before the 14th Amendment. And it's all about why black people have to have the vote. And he says that this feeling, this enmity of Southerners who, who believe that they are superior to black people he said, when everything dies down, it will be passed down, he says, from sire to son. And this enmity, he says, will not end in a year or even two years or even an age. It is false that what they were just trying to do was focused on that period. They understood. They were, in fact, kind of horrified by the stubbornness of these two spirits that they found in their investigations. They believed, or else these would just have been statutes. Mm -hmm. They're in the Constitution because they believed that this was a long-standing problem that threatened the potential for this multiracial democracy to hold together. That's the originalist, <laughs> um, frankly, reading of uh, the 14th Amendment that you see nowhere from uh, these folks who are talking, who, who purport to be originalists, but who are then talking about Plessy versus Ferguson in 1896 and a dissent. Um, and so I just feel like if you're gonna do it, do it for real. 
and do it with a full understanding of what it means to engage in the process of trying to understand what was the intention behind particular provisions of the Constitution. Um, you talked about Justice Jackson. There's a question about what black women have inspired you uh, and your work as a civil rights lit litigator, leader of a civil rights organization at the press. Well, the subject of uh, Tamiko Brown Nagin's book, Constance Baker Motley, is, was a touchstone. Uh, really extraordinary woman uh, who I had the, you know, the honor of getting to meet when I was a young LDF lawyer. Um, and I've told, I've told uh, Dean Brown Nagin this story, but when I was a young LDF lawyer, um, a year, I say I arrived in 88, 89, 1989, um, I was pregnant and I was a full-time litigator. I was, you know, all my cases were in the South and I was getting ready to have my daughter. She was born in 1990 and I, and I you know, was, went to the head of the Legal Defense Fund at the time, Julius Chambers, North Carolina, um, hero, civil rights litigator, and I said to him that I wanted to take four months of maternity leave. And uh, there was another woman in the office who was also pregnant, um, a lawyer, a little bit more senior to me, white woman lawyer, and she said she was taking three months. And so he said to me, well, she said she's taking three months, so why do you need four months? And I said, okay, so that's what we're doing? I mean, like, I, you know. <laughs> and so I said, you know, I figured out this is what I need and so on and so forth. And, and uh, he said, well, I don't see why I should make them different. And it seems like three months is okay. And so, you know, I thought about it. I was pretty upset. And I said, you know what? I'm gonna take four months. Don't pay me for the, you know, the additional month. Uh, and by the way, my salary at this time was, I think, $27,000 a year. Mm -hmm. um, so it wasn't exactly breaking the bank. Anyway, I went off on my maternity. I, had, I, I did my first trial pregnant. I did all my depositions. I finished the trial uh, and went on maternity leave. And um, of course, he paid me for the four months. And his, his assistant said he, he was so embarrassed. He was so embarrassed by the guy. But in any case, uh, so I, I said to him, I said, he's, I said, we have no policy. And he said, well, what did we do in the past? And I said, uh, like what past? We, we, <laughs> women here, women at LDF, largely litigators, did not have children. Right. It wasn't that they weren't allowed, they just didn't. And so I said, uh, you mean like Constance Baker Motley? And he said, yeah, why don't you call Connie Motley and talk to her? <laughs> and I, I said, I don't know, I don't, he said, call her up to, you know. So I did call her, she's on the bench. This is Judge Motley, he's saying, call Connie Motley. <laughs> And so I called her up and I told her that, you know, Julius Chambers said, I should call you, I'm having a baby. And he said, you would be able to, and she said, oh, let's have lunch. And so she took me out to lunch and it was lovely. And her, her advice, by the way, was get a live-in nanny. It was not gonna, that possible. <laughs> um, her husband worked in finance, mind <laughs> And uh, anyway, so that we became friends after that. And I just found her to be such a powerful woman. We used to talk a lot about uh, our backgrounds and, you know, she was very into her family tree yeah. at Nevis and, um, she, she came from a large family as I did yes. and was very close with her siblings. Uh, and I, I love these photographs of her, you know, going in and out of court wearing like this silk shantung suit yes. with the pearls and the, you know, the, the Cuban heels. I mean, the woman looked amazing. And, and that's, you know, that was important in those days. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can imagine these people had never seen in many of these jurisdictions a black woman lawyer before. Uh, it's hot, you know? <laughs> And you still have to look perfect, and your hair has to be right. And 
um, and just how well turned out she was while doing this incredible um, and extraordinary work. And a woman who I think most people don't know desegregated most of the, in her litigation, um, state universities in the South. And I just don't think her name is one that, you know, trips off people's tongue. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, I've talked about Barbara Jordan so much um, and seeing her during the Watergate hearings and um, just seeing the kind of power she had and also her ownership of talking about the Constitution, which seemed even at my very tender age of eight or nine, you know, she was talking about the Constitution as though it was hers. Yeah. And that had yeah. not really occurred yeah, to me before. Really no, important. that was huge. She was serious. And she was not, that was, it was not an act. No. You know, no. this was her, her allegiance, That's she right. said, was to the Constitution. And I found this so powerful and exciting um, and improbable, you know. Um, so, yeah. And that's also called the name of Lonnie Guineer, our friend, our colleague, Let's. our mentor. Yeah. So I went to LDF um, in 1988, and Lonnie Guineer was getting ready to leave. And that's actually why I was hired. Not like I could be any replacement for Lonnie. <laughs> but they needed someone to do some voting rights litigation, and mm -hmm. she agreed to be a consultant. She was going into the academy. She just had her son, Nico, mm -hmm. who's a professor here now and she was um, going to teach at Penn. Right. And so she made an arrangement that she would continue to consult on voting rights cases and basically be my supervisor from afar. This is before Zoom though. Um, be my remote supervisor along with Pam Carlin who was leaving at the same time mm -hmm. to go teach at UVA. Mm -hmm. So in walks, you know, I'm like 90 pounds, soaking wet, don't know anything, a year out of law school, just finished a fellowship at the ACLU, reading the Voting Rights Act for the first time. and um, <laughs> and. You know, and if you knew anything about Professor Guineer, she, she didn't care, you know. Mm -hmm. You had to get up to speed. She was mm -hmm. such a taskmaster. I used to go home on the weekends and I would call my sister, she hates me, she hates me. <laughs> it was so hard, so hard. And uh, I, I couldn't believe the caliber, you know what I mean, that yeah. she was at. So imagine having your two mentors, for those of you who know anything about these two professors, be Lottie Guineer and Pam Carlin. That's extraordinary. It was nerve-wracking. And I've always said, if I didn't get an ulcer the first 18 months I, I was at LDF, I never will. <laughs> That's how stressful it was. Um, but in a very short order, I learned so much from Lonnie. Uh, not only was she incredibly like, brilliant as a litigator, but she was visionary. She was uh, aggressive and bold in terms of thinking about litigation. And she showed me that you could be this kind of scholar because she was producing some of her earliest work then uh, that I was reading just because we were working together. Right, right. And I was like, oh, wait, you can write like that? You know, um, you, can, you can use those kinds of citations. You, can, you know, she was such a, she was so widely read. She was such a, her thinking was so broad and so deep. It was philosophers and um, and legal scholars and star search and like it was, you know, it ran the gamut. She was so brilliant. And she was. Uh, it was, she, so she became the standard for me, I would say for my entire career. And when I became head of LDF, um, I, I wanted her approval so much, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and she was beginning to be, you know, a little bit sick then, but she was so lovely and supportive. Mm -hmm. And I remembered when Jeff Sessions, um, was nominated to be attorney general, you know, Lonnie had tangled with Jeff Sessions when he was U.S. attorney for Alabama uh, around voter fraud litigation. And she was, you know, she was calling me up every day saying, I just want to help. Do you want me to just come sit in the, you know, Senate Judiciary Committee? I'll just sit, I'll just sit. Mm -hmm. 
right behind you. I'll just, this is Lonnie, we got it. You know, don't worry, I don't think there's much we can do about it. They're gonna vote for the guy, you know. But like, she was still so fired up. And um, yeah, there's, there's just no one like her. And the children of Lonnie, uh, the, the many, many yeah. uh, people, as scholars and litigators, uh, who learned under her and tried to meet her standard uh, and still have her, her writings and her example are legion, are legion. Um, and it's an example truly of excellence. We could do this all day, uh, great questions, but this concludes our program. Um, I first need to thank and acknowledge the members of the Radcliffe Institute Leadership Society and our um, annual donors. We also wish to gratefully acknowledge the Perrin Moorhead Grayson and Bruns Grayson Dean's Leadership Fund for Academic Ventures. Uh, they're the ones who are supporting this event. So first, uh, let's just give it up for the supporters of this great institute. And of course, our two interlocutors, uh, Dean Tamiko Brown-Nagan, Professor Sherilyn Eiffel. Uh, brilliant conversation. Uh, thank you to all of you for your terrific questions. That concludes today's program. Born Curious is brought to you by Harvard Radcliffe Institute. Our producer is Alan Gracioso. Jeff Hayash is the man behind the microphone. Anna Song, Kevin Grady, Marcus Kanoki, and Max Doyle provided editing and production support. Many thanks to Jane Huber for editorial support. And we are your co-hosts. I'm Ivalisa Estrada. And I'm Heather Min. Our website, where you can listen to all our episodes, is radcliffe.harvard.edu slash borncurious. If you have feedback, you can email us at info at radcliffe.harvard.edu. You can follow Harvard Radcliffe Institute on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and X. And as always, you can find Born Curious wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for learning with us, and join us next time.